McDonald's hit with a $10 billion discrimination suit from media mogul Byron Allen, who alleges the company intentionally discriminated against his companies. And we'll go to the reporter's room with Wendell Hudson and Ali Marathi to talk about a diversity, equity, and inclusion scorecard for firms aiming to do business with the city, about Mayor Lightfoot's controversial message to Chicago newsrooms, and more. She just sort of said that she noticed how stark it was that the press corps covering City Hall and editorial boards of the major newsrooms in the city were largely white. You know, I've always been, you know, I've been on both sides of the of the aisle, having been a reporter with mainstream press and the community press. And I can tell you that the community press is pushed to the side. It is not considered a priority. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, May 24th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Okay, so you both cover a whole lot of things, a, a ton of things, and you both had really interesting uh, stories on your beats this this past week. So, Ali, I want to start with you. I know you wrote about how uh, restaurants have changed in the loop But I want to start, however, with um, talking about Mayor Lightfoot. You wrote about this move she made, and I thought it was really interesting. Tell me about this. This last week marked her two-year anniversary since her inauguration. So typically, she gives one-on-one interviews to journalists um, who want to do stories about that and kind of check in. And so she made the decision to only grant those one-on-one interviews to journalists of color, so naturally, this sparked a lot of conversation, um, you know, from the journalism industry, from uh, industry observers, from those that are pushing for more diversity and inclusion. And, you know, the conversation started before Lightfoot really explained herself. And so she sent a, a letter to some journalists kind of explaining her decision. And she just sort of said that since she has been running from even since, you know, she started running for mayor, she noticed how stark it was that the press corps covering City Hall and editorial boards of the major newsrooms in the city were largely white, and she mentioned largely male as well. So she just wanted to call attention to that. It was a really interesting conversation that was started on social media and among journalists, too, because then you saw some journalists of color that were granted the interview kind of saying, Greg Pratt from the Chicago Tribune is an example, sort of saying, you know, the mayor can't pick and choose who covers her. She did go on to say in her letter that, um, you know, her team would continue to be responsive to everyone. And I spoke to a few experts about this and they said this likely won't go on forever. It's just in relation to this two year anniversary mark. Um, but, you know, she she was not wrong. It's, it's a problem in Chicago journalism that newsrooms are, you know, are not as diverse as the city that we cover. And I spoke with a few experts that kind of, you know, had differing views on this one said it was a real boss move. That's a quote um, by Mayor Lightfoot to call attention to this. Another said that, you know, it's not people that get interviewed, pick and choose who interview them all the time. They choose who to grant interview to and who to give their time to. Um, But it was rather historic that she chose to put race into the picture and that decision. So, you know, there's been some fallout and it's been interesting to see. And 
um, people, a lot of people were saying it was basically a PR move on her part. And, you know, whatever her intentions were, she definitely sparked some conversation around this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say this, whatever her intentions were, there was a lot of debate on Twitter, more than I've ever seen about what, what, what do newsrooms in this city look like? I've never seen that much of it happening as I did after that happened. So like, what stood out to you? What comments? I, I would throw this question to both of you. What points did people raise that you saw that you, you thought were compelling? I think the big thing that really struck me was the timing of this, right? We're about at the year anniversary of the George Floyd murder. This has been a big conversation among all companies that we cover here at Cranes and just all organizations in general, right? Of trying to increase the diversity and inclusion, trying to get more people of color into those organizations. And the journalists are holding a lot of these organizations accountable and saying, hey, you need to, you know, we need to make sure that you are walking the walk and not just talking the talk. So, you know, the point that Lightfoot was sort of turning the mirror back on journalists and saying, okay, why are you doing this in your own organizations? I think that was a really big point that stood out. Yeah. uh, Wendell, what about you? What stood out to you in that conversation? Well, (laughs) what stood out to me was um, when she individually called out uh, uh, some of the news organizations, Crane being one of them, uh, the Tribune and the Sun-Times, I doubt, you know, to see that she specifically made sure those news outlets were mentioned in her letter. What that told me was that she may, I'm assuming she reads us quite often. Uh, I'm assuming that she pays close attention to these three publications uh, because I, I even heard she, I don't know how true it is, but I heard she canceled her subscription to the Tribune because she didn't like the coverage with how she's handling the police uh, during the pandemic. Um, So she is a very, uh, I guess, media frenzy type of politician, one that pays a lot of attention to the news media. So, I mean, that that's that really stuck out to me when I saw that. Um, and then I said on the, on the other side of that, uh, and you know, I even, even heard some reporters say that, um, they don't deny what she said in the letter. They said, maybe if she would have gave some examples, if you're going to call these news organizations out, then say, well, for, I mean, she did, and I guess in a certain way, say she did, cause she said there's no people of color on these editorial boards. So I, I, I guess in that sense, she did sort of give evidence of, if you're going to call out these particular news organizations and give some example, why do you, why are you calling us out? So, and, and that was true what she said about, you know, no, no uh, people of color on the uh, editorial board. So I, I guess that was sort of her substance to that. But yeah, the fact that she, she pointed Crane and two other news outlets out, I, I thought that was, that was pretty interesting in that letter. Yeah. I mean, I think this is kind of like a side tangent of that, like in the practice of calling out a news organization, I think it's so important when people go specifically to an example, even language. I mean, I think semantics are so important, right? Mm -hmm. When people specifically say, hey, in this, you know, this story about this, you called this activity this. Or, you know, for example, I think one we see a lot is when we refer to protesting versus rioting. Like who gets gets described as a protester and who gets described as a rioter or a looter or something like that. Like I think calling out really specific examples, but it, it, it kind of drives me up a wall when, when like it's a blanket call out, like 
I mean, the one I will, the hill I will die on for sure is when people are like the media are all doing this. Like, there's no one media. We don't share a brain. We don't, right. you know, we don't right. check in. But I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with with both of you. And I think, um, you know, I think the the call out can never be too specific because then people can kind of get what you're trying to say. Also, I would not want to be the person delivering the newspaper to Lightfoot's home. Can you, <laughs> knowing like she's on the cover. A lot of people may not know that, and I've been to two of them myself, but the mayor, uh, she actually, every month, she meets with the community press uh, for one hour. Uh, and you have to be a member of the community press. So whether it's, you know, for the most part, it's community newspapers. Um, but she meets with them for one hour reporters. Um, and it's usually at City Hall. And she said, and the reason she does that she says it's because reporters at Community Press don't often get an opportunity to interview her and ask her questions unless, you know, they catch her at a public event. But to call her up and get a statement from their press people so they can use for a story, um, that doesn't normally happen. So she does do that uh, every month. Before I joined Crane, I was a member of the Community Press. So I attended two of those uh, actual uh, meetings that she has every month, which which I actually think is pretty good because it's, it's um, nothing is off limit. Uh, you pretty much can ask her whatever you want. And I mean, she she answers it. Uh, but, you know, like I told the mayor, you know, when I was a member of the community press, I said, this is great. I said, but you may want to work toward a goal of not even needing this. Because to me, you know, I've always been, you know, I've been on both sides of the of the aisle, having been a reporter with mainstream press and the community press. And I can tell you that the community press is pushed to the side. It is not considered a priority, opposed to if a reporter at the Tribune or sometimes a crane calls, you'll get a response back. But if a reporter at the Chicago Defender or the High Park Herald, Oftentimes, the, the press people won't even email you a statement. They'll say, oh, she's busy. I'm busy. I'll see what I can do. And you never hear from them. Yeah. And you end up quoting her from a press release. Right. Well, kind of related to this topic, Wendell, you uh, wrote about Melissa Conyers Irvin um, mm-hmm. and how she, when she was elected to Chicago City Treasurer, she created the this is a mouthful. Chicago City Treasurer Broker Dealer Diversity Scorecard as a way to measure a firm's or brokerage firms like leadership efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion and corporate social responsibility. And that scorecard helps kind of figure out which firms will do business with the city. Tell me about this story and what you learned in this reporting. So this story actually is 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 a part of our equity section. What she's done, and you know, I've searched around, and I, I haven't found any other uh, governmental agency doing this. She created this diversity scorecard. Uh, it's eleven pages long, and and these brokerage firms have to fill this out. One of the main things she's looking for is to see what type of diversity this brokerage firm has, and if they don't have that, uh, that's not the sole reason why she won't select them. But she says it, it's a big part of her decision making. Because she wants uh, the city to do business with firms that are diversified. And so um, there were firms, you know, I have, you know, in the story you would see there, there were a list of companies that did business um, in 2019. And then when the 2020 list came out, some of those firms weren't on there. And so, um, yeah, she's, she's real committed to that. 
uh, I had an opportunity to speak with both her and her husband, Alderman Jason Irvin, of the 28th Ward, uh, which represents the West Side. Uh, but she is firmly committed to this. Um, it is something very unique that she grades these brokerage firms, um, not just on their performance, but on their diversity. And she's especially looking for women in, in top leadership positions. Don't, you know, as she said, don't just tell me how many women work there, how many women are in C-suites, how many women are in top executive positions. And she, you know, has a formula, you know, 10% for this, they need to meet, I think it with the women is 30%. So she actually has a formula. And if they don't meet that formula, when it's time to sit down and decide what firm, she looks at that and be like, nah, they only had 10%. Nah, they only had 20%. So it really has made it a priority for a lot of brokerage firms that they need to diversify if they want to get business from the city of Chicago. Yeah. And, and in your reporting, what stood out to you as maybe surprising or just really a significant detail that emerged in that reporting? Uh, one of the things that, 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 that stuck out with me was um, the fact that a brokerage firm could have done well uh, performance-wise, uh, but they don't do well when it comes to their diversity. And so one would think that as long as they're managing money and the returns are good, what difference does it make? Uh, but to her, it makes a big difference. And so she doesn't she doesn't just look at the performance. And that's why I said, you know, you have firms that did business last year that didn't get chosen the year after that. And it wasn't because their performance was bad. It wasn't because um, that, you know, the, the rate of return on the dollar wasn't good. It was, I, I can only assume she didn't say it, but I can only assume it was because their diversity had fallen. So that that's one of the things that stuck out to me that she is willing. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people don't, don't even know about this diversity scorecard. They learn about it, obviously, when they read it in Crane. Uh, but once they do, um, you know, she says she's she's not if people wants to say, hey, we're losing money and that has nothing to do with it. She says she's prepared to take the hit. She says she has no no plans on changing. So the fact that she's committed to that, the fact that she. Um, did not select certain big name firms, I would say, uh, because of their diversity. That really stuck out to me because, you know, me as an outsider, I'm not a money person. I would just think as a taxpayer, hey, as long as my tax money is being invested right, you know, uh, I don't really care, you know, if they don't have any women in C-suites. You know, they're making money for the city. You know, what difference does it make? You know, but it, it, it makes a big difference with her. Okay, I'm going to try to do one whopper of a segue right now. Let's see if this works. Okay, my segue is this. A lot of firms, speaking of a lot of big firms, a lot of big firms have been pushing people to get back to the office. However, mm-hmm. Allie, you recently wrote about how, you see it? I did it. I made it. <laughs> you recently wrote about how people, um, how, you know, the downtown lunchtime dining was, was quite a different thing pre-pandemic and how the pandemic has shifted it. Tell me about this. Yeah, so kind of the um, king of loop lunches is probably going to be to go now, which is interesting, you know, especially at fast casual places. I spoke with Luke's Lobster, for example, and there are other examples too. Like there's a food hall that just replaced Wells Street Market in the loop um, that's totally focused on to go now. There's some some seating, but you're supposed to order ahead. So basically, um, you know, what they're expecting is that when people come back down to the office, whether you are just running to grab a quick sandwich 
or you know, you're sticking around in your office, hanging out with your coworkers who you haven't seen for a year and a half, um, you're going to order to go, you know, and I think that is really interesting. And I was spoke, speaking with some of like the steakhouses and the places where business clientele go in and kind of have their business lunches, like the Dearborn and the Gage on Michigan, um, and even Jean and Giorgetti's in River North. And they are starting to see their lunch business return a little bit. But they said it's still at a fraction of what it once was. And basically in April, occupancy in office buildings was 16% of what it normally was. And they um, expect it to be up to 50% by July. So I think, you know, these kind of like summer holidays are kind of benchmarks for offices bringing their people back down to work. But I did actually speak to somebody who um, before the pandemic would take, you know, his client or whoever out to lunch three to four times a week, which that seems like a lot to me, but that is kind of indicative of how vital the loop lunch scene is to the health of, you know, the downtown business district in Chicago. And he said something really interesting to me that it's almost like a chicken and an egg situation where a lot of these business people weren't going to come back downtown until the restaurants were open, but the restaurants were waiting for people to come back downtown to reopen or to add hours. So it's kind of interesting to see that play there and the codependency, right? And just the bigger picture of how important this is to the vitality of Chicago's downtown. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, there's going to be a lot of places that are gone. The vacancy rate in the loop, um, as far as retailers go, which includes restaurants, is up to 15%. It was about 12 or 13 pre-pandemic. So it's not going to be desolate. There are a lot of um, restaurants that have survived, but there will be some that are gone. And there are new tenants coming into those places. But I'm told by a real estate agent that it will be probably later this year, early next year, that some of those really start to open because they're kind of hedging their bets a little bit. So it's going to be different, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I was wondering about that. Like what's going to, what is the future of like the power lunch, right? <laughs> that you see, yeah. see people, you know, going downtown to do that. Um, okay. But that you've given me another good segue, Allie, because <laughs> now is the time where we switch to three stories that stood out um, off of your beat somewhere else, other things. And I'll give you mine because one of them is a fascinating story that I read about how cicadas, I'm obsessed with all the cicada story, but how they're could you not be. <laughs> how can you not be? Because they're getting weirder and weirder by the day. Um, but I read this interesting story, and in it, they had interviewed a couple of uh, restaurant owners in Washington, D.C., who they're kind of like right in the flight plan of the cicadas. And they're like, we've really been depending on this outdoor business, but now they're going to be cicadas everywhere. So one restaurant had been open since like 1860 or something, you know, had been open forever. And they and the the owner there said, you know, this restaurant has gone through a lot of cicada cycles, and uh, we are we're just not going to plan to have a big summer because we think people are going to be not wanting to sit outside covered in cicadas. And I thought, gosh, poor restaurants that have just kind of already gone through so much. That Other is th- wild. I hadn't I even thought of that. I'll have to ask some of the Chicago restaurants if they're dealing with that too, because you're right; it's like been 14 months of loss, you know. And, and then if cicadas come in and <laughs> come in and steal your business too, that's a lot. The other thing, the Oatly market debut this, this past week was really interesting. I think all the plant-based food uh, debuts have been really interesting. And I, I thought there's so many celebrities behind that one too, like Oprah, Natalie Portman have gotten behind that one. So I'm always interested in market debuts because I just think they're interesting just because it's a big like hype party, right? But I thought that was very interesting. And then I can't get enough of, of numbers around 
airline bad behavior. <laughs> the number that sticks out to me is that usually there's about 100 to 150 incidents of like unruly passenger behavior reported and like pursued per year. And there've been over 1300 already this year. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a lot. There's a lot going on there at the end of this Has year. Has COVID changed the bar for that? Right. I mean, before was it like drunkenly and disorderly and now it's just like if you're not wearing your mask. Well, that's what it sounded like. It was like drunken disorderly or fighting among seats or, you know, that's my overhead bin or whatever. But it seemed like now it was like fighting, fighting with flight attendants and, and insulting and threatening them over like you can't make me put on a mask, things like that. So I, I think that's going to be a fascinating story. So anyway, I would turn the question to you. What uh, what uh, Wendell, let's start with you. What three stories have have had your attention over the last week? Uh, well, uh, one we've talked about already, the uh, mayor letter, uh, which I thought was was uh, people are still talking about it. Uh, the second one, though, would be uh, and Ali and I had, had even talked about this was McDonald's had recently came out and announced that it was going to be uh, raising its hourly wage at its corporate stores. Uh, to $13 an hour. Um, and so what's interesting about that, I used to cover McDonald's uh, when I was a reporter with the Chicago Defender, so I, I know a lot about their background. But what's important about that is that most McDonald's restaurants are franchise owned. So only about 5%, I believe, is, is actually corporate owned. So we're talking about a small amount of McDonald's restaurants that will uh, make their minimum wage uh, at $13 an hour, which here in the city of Chicago right now is 14 and it's going to $15 an hour July 1st. So, you know, I just found that really interesting. It, to me, it was a PR move because McDonald's has been uh, embroiled in a, in a lot of scandals this past year from their former CEO being accused of having inappropriate relationships with female workers to, a, a, about two dozen former black franchise owner suing them in a class action lawsuit. So they've had a lot of PR problem. And I just saw this as one of you know them trying to spin this, getting some, some positivity conversation going. Uh, then my third one would be the, the colleges. Um, as, as colleges are getting ready to uh, start their fall semester, more and more here in the city of Chicago, have come out to say that students must be vaccinated to return to campus. So DePaul University, Columbia College, uh, Loyola, and Northwestern have all said that in order for students to live on campus, to return to classes on campus this fall, they must be vaccinated. And so other colleges have not made decisions yet. Chicago State hasn't made a decision. So many other colleges, UIC, haven't made a decision. They said it's their you know, trying to think about that. But what I really found interesting was the ones that said that students must be vaccinated to return to campus. That same mandate is not put on faculty and staff. And I'm like, well, you want the students to be vaccinated, but it's OK for the professor. It's OK for the person that works in the financial aid office. They're not required. So that just seemed backwards to me. And they really gave no answer when I, I tried to press them on that. You know, is that a contract issue? What I don't. I don't understand why would you say students could be vaccinated, but faculty and staff can't. So uh, that th those are three stories that, that recently s stick out in my head that I really found interesting. That is interesting. I wonder if it's like a, yeah, if it, is that a labor issue? Is that a 
I don't know, because I know like some schools require vaccination in non-pandemic times, right? Certain, you know, you have to have certain vaccinations to attend a school. I don't know. That's an interesting one. And I mean, even Chicago Public Schools is not requiring its staff. I know a ton of people that work for Chicago Public Schools and it is not mandated that they be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And I'm like that, again, maybe it's just me. It just, that just doesn't make sense. You got adults working around children and they don't have to be vaccinated in order to work around kids. Right. Allie, what about you? What stories stood out this week? Obviously the pandemic, which kind of lingers over every story we tell. But one thing in particular that I saw in the New York Times at the end of last week was just that um, the story about bills that a lot of, um, you know, COVID, former COVID patients are getting now. And Congress passed some legislation that was supposed to help with that, right? Because if you have chronic illnesses or serious illnesses, you always deal with really high medical bills, some of which are surprises, But it's looking like now what Congress did wasn't enough because there are folks out there that are just swimming in debt, you know, thousands of dollars, millions of dollars in some cases, people that, you know, didn't go to the emergency room. There's a lot of people that had to visit the emergency room or the hospital after recovering from COVID because they had lingering symptoms or issues and people that hesitated doing that because they didn't want to pay. They didn't want to have to worry about the bills that they were going to get shackled with. The other two stories are um, our colleagues here at Cranes reported. I thought were really interesting. One is um, John Platt's on the weed beat. I used to cover the cannabis industry before I came to Crane. So I remain fascinated by the twists and turns of operating a business in such a highly regulated environment. And he did a story um, just how the growth of edibles, basically, and how important that's going to be to the growth of the industry at large. And it's interesting to see what the Chicago weed companies are doing with that, because there's so much of a history here in Chicago of candy making. You know, I don't, I just think it's super interesting. They're, you know, pulling some like veterans of the candy industry. And that's, that's not necessarily new. You know, they've been doing that um, for a few years now, but it's just interesting to see how vital the edibles are going to be to the growth of the industry at large. So that was one. And then there's just continuing discussion about wild, wild house, the housing market. And it's just unattainable. Prices are a suggestion. I have a friend that recently bought a house and he had an inspector on call in case something came through and it's just insane. And I'm really happy. I'm not trying to buy a house right now. I know. And I I feel for Rodkin. I really do. Dennis Rodkin has so many, he's the busiest guy right now because, you know, he, I'm surprised he has time to even talk to me ever because he's so busy. And I thought it was interesting how he has been talking about some of the tactics people are going to, to get a house before they're on the market or like to sweeten their offer. I mean, it's absolutely bizarre. These are, these continue to be bizarre times. I think we can all agree. Yes. You know, Amy, with, with, when you was talking about that housing, you know, it, it reminded me of a story I did uh, maybe about a month ago now. There was a study done by Redfin that concluded that um, houses in black neighborhoods were being undervalued by $56,000, you know, opposed to similar homes in white neighborhoods. And they even gave, you know, specific examples here in Chicago. It was just a coincidence when that study came out because um, I had a, a personal friend of mine had actually pitched that as a story idea, not the actual study, but he is a he's a homeowner and a landlord, and he he was getting his building appraised, and so when uh, him him and his, him and his wife when when they appraised it, I think he said it was like one hundred and fifty thousand, and he said what he did 
What he did after that was he got two of his white friends to pose as the owners. And then and, and then when, when another appraiser came, they valued his home at 180000 Wow. And so he was like, they're going to go with the higher offer of 180, but he just was fascinated. It was like, there's nothing different about this house from last week other than the color of the owners. And it was just a coincidence that a week later, Redfin came out with this study that pretty much supported what he right. had did on his own as far as this experiment of homes being undervalued by appraisers because they're located in minority neighborhoods. Yeah. Oh, I, I remember that story that you had. I thought that was really fascinating. That did really well on social media. I saw a lot of people talking about that one. Allie, do you have to run? Are you good? I think I should, yes. You do? Sorry. Yeah, breaking breaking <laughs> news beckons, so you go do that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's all good. Okay, see you, Allie. All right, we got it all. Cool. That's all good. All right, see you, Amy. Coming up in today's top stories, the state of Illinois will repay feds $2 billion with local money and not COVID relief. Tired of waiting for a rules answer from the U.S. Treasury, Springfield leaders say they'll rely on tax receipts and cash management instead. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. McDonald's is being sued by media mogul Byron Allen's company. According to the lawsuit, Allen is seeking $10 billion in damages for racial discrimination, alleging McDonald's intentionally discriminated against his company, Entertainment Studios, and Weather Group through what was described as a pattern of racial stereotyping and refusals to contract. The civil rights lawsuit was filed just hours after McDonald's announced it's taking various steps to more than double its U.S. media spending with black-owned media and production properties. The lawsuit says that of McDonald's approximately $1.6 billion annual television advertising budget, quote, McDonald's spends less than approximately $5 million each year on African-American-owned media, and it has refused to advertise on entertainment studios' networks or the Weather Channel since Allen acquired the network in 2018. That, according to the suit. Byron Allen, founder, chairman, and CEO of Allen Media Group, said in a statement, this is about economic inclusion of African-American-owned businesses in the U.S. economy. His statement continued, McDonald's takes billions from African-American consumers and gives almost nothing back. He continued, the biggest trade deficit in America is the trade deficit between white corporate America and black America, and McDonald's is guilty of perpetuating this disparity. The economic exclusion must stop immediately, he said. McDonald's said in a statement, quote, Together with our owner-operators, we have doubled down on our relationships with diverse-owned partners. Continuing, this includes increasing our spend with diverse-owned media from 4% to 10%, and with black-owned media from 2% to 5% of total national advertising over the next four years. Allen and five other leaders of major black-owned media companies also wrote an open letter to McDonald's CEO Chris Kamzinski, asking him to, quote, stop the systemic racism by McDonald's against black-owned media companies. They said McDonald's should commit 5 to 15 percent of its advertising and marketing spend to black-owned media and requested a one-hour Zoom meeting with the CEO and several of its key board members. After several months, a move from a Swiss billionaire and campaigns from journalists pleading for local ownership, shareholders have decided hedge fund Alden Global Capital will buy Tribune Publishing for $17.25 per share. Shareholders voted for the deal Friday morning in a meeting open only to those who hold stock. 
Alden, already the company's largest shareholder, will pay $454 million for the remainder of Tribune Publishing that it doesn't already own. Alden's per-share price values the company at about $630 million. The deal will put Tribune Publishing fully under the control of Alden, which has a reputation for deep cost-cutting, including newsroom layoffs at roughly 200 newspapers it's acquired in a buyout spree across the country. But there will likely be shareholders that challenge the decision and try to stop the deal from going through. That according to Rick Edmonds, a media business analyst for the Pointer Institute who spoke with Cranes. And to that point, several shareholders filed suits in recent weeks in an effort to postpone Friday's vote. However, questions remain about how Alden will finance the deal and whether the company's newspapers will be saddled with debt from the purchase. Alden has reserved the right to borrow its $375 million cash contribution and plans to finance the remaining $79 million of the purchase price with Tribune Publishing Cash. CNA Financial, among the largest insurance companies in the country, reportedly paid $40 million in late March to regain control of its network after a ransomware attack. That according to people with knowledge of the events who spoke to Bloomberg, who asked not to be named because they weren't authorized to discuss the matter publicly. Chicago-based CNA reportedly paid the hackers about two weeks after a mass of company data was stolen and CNA officials were locked out of their network. In a statement, a CNA spokesperson said the company followed the law and consulted and shared intelligence about the attack and the hacker's identity with the FBI and the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, which said last year that facilitating ransom payments to hackers could pose sanctions risks. In an update about the incident published on May 12th, CNA said it did not believe that the system of record, claim systems, or underwriting systems where the majority of policyholder data is stored were impacted. Amid uncertainty from the U.S. Treasury on the matter, state officials late last week said that they've figured out a way for the state to repay the $2 billion it borrowed from the Federal Reserve without relying on U.S. COVID relief money. Governor J.B. Pritzker, Comptroller Susanna Mendoza, Senate President Don Harmon, and House Speaker Emanuel Chris Welch said in a joint statement that a combination of stronger-than-expected local state revenues and some selective cash management will allow the entire remaining debt to be paid by December 31st. The state originally borrowed $3.2 billion, but has been slowly paying it off for the last couple of quarters. It had expected to use the $8.1 billion it's getting from the American Rescue Plan that was approved under President Joe Biden, but a wrinkle in that developed when proposed rules issued by the Treasury indicated that money could not be used to pay debt. State officials replied to the feds that the debt involved was COVID-related and not old bills, but have relented under the new plan. And that's Crane's Daily just for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to both of our guests, Crane's reporters Ali Marathi and Wendell Hudson. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.